0: That's Saturday evenings on 3CR, 8.55am or via web streaming on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us.
1: Welcome. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, and it's Climate Strike Day, <laughs>
2: or the Global Climate Strike Day. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, which is um yeah, it's going to be happening in more than. Um, do you know the number of countries that are, it's going to be happening today? No, I don't. But I well, think it it's a probably lot. be it'll be happening mostly tomorrow in the other countries because we're sort of a day ahead of everyone else. So Australia will be. The, and probably New Zealand um, will probably be the first countries to have um, the global construct before it really kicks off in the rest of the world. Yep. And um, yeah, there's a more than, um, I guess before I will talk a bit about that, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR um, today is being broadcast to you from the land of the Kulin Nation. Um, i like to pay our respect to Elders past and present and that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. And I would also like to acknowledge that, you know, the kind of fight in terms of, in light of um, Climate Strike Day, um, you know, that the fight for climate justice can't really truly be achieved without addressing Indigenous sovereignty um, and making um, Aboriginal people the centre of, you know, fighting for, um, for such a thing. Hear, right now I guess um talk I want to actually talk start we can start off actually by talking a bit about um the global climate strike, I think because it's quite amazing actually um the amount of broad support um that it has received um I am suspecting it could be the biggest protest um since the stop the Iraq war protests in this potentially could be up to in Melbourne alone there could be over eighty to a hundred thousand people um potentially could exceed that, but I think that's sort of my estimates at this point. Um but and you know, drawing from an article from Green Left Weekly, support for the September twentieth 20th student-led global strike is growing in Australia as the big day nears, and that um, some of the broad support has received has been from local councils, unions and churches have declared their support, and more strikes have been organised every day in what is building up to be the biggest day of protests. I mean, they even say this since the 2003 anti-Iraq war mobilisations. And, you know, some of the examples of councils that have given it support have been the Moreland Council, um, the Fremantle Council in in Western Australia. Uh, The Yarra City Council had also um, given support, Um, although not necessarily all councils have reacted this way. Liberal and Labor councillors on the Inner West Council in Sydney blocked the Greens from putting a motion to endorse the global climate strike. Um, Port Phillip Council in Victoria said employees could take annual leave to attend the strike but refused to support on the grounds that there would be a range of views on students leaving school to take part, um, which kind of sort of reminds me of um, the, some of the more conservative kind of forces who are arguing against the strike. In fact, there was one Moreland councillor who argued uh, that he didn't want to support the strike on the principle that he was a teacher and he didn't support students um, skipping school. What a dead shit.
1: What a loser.
2: <laughs> and also, I also think it's also weird because, I mean, as someone who actually works at schools, um, f- this Friday is actually the last day of school, and most um, most schools are going to be finished quite early. Uh, in fact, most of them will finish by 2 o'clock or even earlier than that. Hmm. Um, so I don't know, you know, to take half the day off to attend the global strike. You know, most students could probably just attend the first half of school and just leave as soon as research starts and walk out, so... Yeah, like, my parents are both
1: teachers, and on the last day of term, what do you do? Sit around in class and watch videos, <laughs> generally. It's a bit of a bludge day. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's... So, if kids are wanting to take strike action on climate change, I would have thought teachers should be celebrating that they are switched on enough about the world that they live in and engaged enough to want to try and influence the political process in this country. Like, it's a really healthy sign. It's it's weird how people flip from going, Oh, you know, kids today are so apathetic, not like back in my day
2: and then once they want to get out on the streets, oh they should stay in school. This is outrageous. And then um the next more interesting thing has been universities. So the a lot of the universities have endorsed the strike. In fact my university, Melbourne Uni, has endorsed the student um the strike, but sort of saying that people, you know not necessarily the big the best one but you know they basically said that students who want to attend can attend and, and won't get penalized for doing so and that teachers must accommodate the um, the students who um, who attend the, um, who um, attend and um, who attend the strike in terms of those arrangements um, but i think w- what's quite but the only university that has not um, endorsed the climate strike at this point has been RMIT for some reason. Um, despite um, touting themselves as the leaders in sustainability, um, they still refu- have refused to back um, the global climate strike. And I guess the other more interesting um, kind of thing is outside... So the majority of the trade unions have endorsed the strike, um, but I guess trade unions are in a bit of a pickly position in the sense that they can't necessarily or have the will or etc. to organise kind of mass sort of strikes in support, um, like getting workplaces bit by bit to sort of walk out on the job. So it's going to be a lot of the union um, workers who are going to be attending the strike are probably going to be a combination of people taking annual leave or people who might have got motions passed. I mean, you want to report a bit on the MUA sort of, stuff which has been the most interesting.
1: Yeah, I'm just trying to find an article. Um, so the Sydney branch of the MUA, which is, you know, the MUA in general is a more radical union, has a um, pretty sort of, you know, more class struggle perspective. And then the Sydney branch within the MUA is one of the more radical branches. Um, I think the branch secretary is Paul McAleer, who's a um, communist party uh, he's he's a he's a he's a legit lefty. Let's say that. Mm. And um, so the the Sydney MUA branch are going to be walking off the job today to support the climate strike, which is fantastic. And if more unions could uh, show the spine to defy our um, restrictive industrial relations laws and and walk off <coughs> in defiance, um, that would really step this up another notch on top of how good it already is. And there was a member of the Sydney MUA. Uh, I'm trying to find the article, but I'm, I'm, it's a bit of a struggle. But, yeah, Sydney uh, MUA member has had an article published in the Daily Telegraph yesterday, uh, of all places, talking about how, as someone who's worked in fossil fuels, uh, they support the climate strike and... Um, People who've worked installing gas infrastructure or whatever, they don't wake up in the morning and go, oh gee, let's go and ruin the planet. Um, They do it because, you know, it's it's, it's basic stuff, but it bears repeating. People work in these damaging industries because they need to pay their rent or pay their mortgage, keep a roof over their head. And um, yeah, he's basically making the point if alternative jobs are created. Uh, fossil fuel workers will come across to those other jobs. There's nothing magical about fossil fuels that makes us want to work in that particular industry. And, uh, yeah, totally supporting of the climate strike and just really well written, um, articles, uh, just, just making some really good points in a really clear, easy to, easy to understand way. So it's great to see because there hasn't been that many fossil fuel workers who've really had their, um, I don't know, the, the spine to come out and publicly say, as a fossil fuel worker, I support climate action. So whenever that happens, it's it's really, it's really good. And it, uh, it emboldens other people who work in fossil fuels to think about this stuff and not see climate activists as their enemy. And, uh, yeah, and I, I think it's really good that the climate strike has had such a strong focus on a just transition.
2: Hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the other things... Um Now, so, um, there's been a number of churches who have, um, given support, um, to the climate strike, including the Uniting Church, um, and so on. But the more outside the churches, the trade unions and, I think, and universities and the local councils, probably the more interesting kind of supporters of the climate strike has been the number of businesses that have kind of supported the climate strike. And now, not to really name any kind of specific names, but just um, commenting on the general trend, I think it's kind of reflective of the fact that this has become, in a sense, almost a mass movement. The um, the movement around school strike has become so Broad and big, um, that, you know, businesses that are typically, are uh, contributing to, um, the climate crisis, um, you know, through, through making profits off, um, off these polluting industries from, um, the fact that, you know, even companies that aren't fossil fuel companies, some of the big corporations who may or may not be supporting the global climate strike are paying little to no tax. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you know, that, so it's like it's good that these businesses are supporting the climate strike but they can't necessarily be the center of creating this political change and in fact the political change that comes um that will have to be that will have to happen as a result of um of these climate mass mobilizations for the climate the main slu- um the concrete solutions that are going to happen like for example public ownership of the energy system etc these these companies are going to have to you know, take the hit at some mm. point. Um, their, their taxes, they're going to have to be made accountable to pay more tax at some point. Um, they're going to have to or be. Or indeed, in some cases,
1: be nationalized. Yes. <laughs> and
2: they've also got to, um, they've also got to be accountable for whatever business dealings that they have with, you know, polluting industries, et cetera. So I think that's, um, it's good that businesses are coming on board, but I don't think they cannot be seen as the center political um, change and so In fact, they are very much part of the problem even if they're jumping on the bandwagon.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting dynamic, though, and what I think it points to is an emerging rift within the capitalist class about climate change and what we do about it, because there are certain capitalists who uh, will be less affected by a shift to uh, renewable energy. So for a, a key example would be manufacturing capitalists, so you've got a country like Germany that's led the way on um, more progressive climate policy, more renewables, and it's not a coincidence because what's the number one export out of Germany? Manufactured items. And that can include solar panels and wind turbines and that sort of stuff. Whereas the capitalist class in Australia, what's our number one and number two export? is coal and, and um iron ore. So I think that's... This this interesting phenomena of uh, businesses supporting the climate strike uh, points to a split in the in the ruling class, and it's usually the ruling class that are splitting us. And here's an opportunity for us to push back and give them a dose of their own medicine, and start to uh, drive a wedge between those sort of businesses that are supporting the climate strike today and the uh, the crusty old fossil fuel elite. As typified by the Liberal Party and even within the Liberal Party, I think the, the booting of Malcolm turnbull that that split about how do we, what to do about climate change was a factor there so it 's interesting times, and the way I would partly look at this strategically is a bit like um, the the sort of failed move to stop the rise of, of um, Hitler and fascism in europe. Um, I think it would be a mistake for the left to view um, quote-unquote green capitalists or woke capitalists as equally as bad as the fossil fuel capitalists. Um, that's a bit like calling social democrats social fascists um, in the 1930s as the fascists um, rose to power. So I think they're... There is, You can say that green capitalists are a lesser evil, and if, if people want to support the climate strike, that's a good thing, but I totally agree, as you point out. Um, it's, it's got to be the sort of class-conscious activists that are leading the charge, and if some businesses want to come along and get on the bandwagon, good, but they shouldn't be centred and, and put in the driving seat of this change that needs to happen. But, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting and uh, <laughs> welcome weird scenario where there's a whole bunch of businesses saying, oh, yeah, you want to take the day off to go to a strike? Go for it.
2: Hmm. All right. So we might just play a quick announcement and probably move on to our first interview.
1: Indeed. Oh, and just before we do, another uh, development on the climate strike and unions front was, and I don't know if you talked about this last week, probably not, um, the uh, Hunter Workers, formerly Newcastle um, Trades Hall Council, they've supported the last couple of climate strikes, and then by all indications, it looks like the mining union has been lobbying other trades halls and unions behind the scenes. And there was an article in the Newcastle Herald a couple of days ago, um, whereby the <laughs> climate strike organisers contacted Hunter workers in Newcastle and said, "Hey, can we borrow your sound system and use uh, to use as a stage again?" And they said no. And the question was asked, "Well, how come? What's going on?" And apparently the mining union threatened to disaffiliate from hunter workers if hunter workers supported the <coughs> the climate strike. Now, this is a really sinister development, I think, because if you look back at the trade union, the, probably one of the, the high points of the trade union movement and the class struggle in this country is the BLF green bands in the 1970s. And you had the most sort of conscious and militant part of the trade union movement uniting with community uh, resident action groups, and their combined force of these resident action groups and the unions created something that was um, stronger than the two individual elements on their own. And I think with the school strike, we're seeing the emergence of a similar sort of thing. We've got the school kids teaming up with unions, and that's a really powerful combination But in the world's biggest coal port, that nexus is being sabotaged by the mining union on behalf of the coal bosses. Uh, And I think it's the longer it goes on and the more serious the climate emergency gets, the mining union position of trying to still just support unfettered coal exports, pretend like climate change isn't a thing, it's just simply unacceptable and it's really wrong that the mining union has blackmailed hunter workers into not supporting the climate strike up there. Mm. And and I think hunter workers will regret that because I think today is going to be huge and it's really a missed opportunity for hunter workers to be front and centre right in the thick of this and, and showing their relevance to a new generation of young workers who who are fighting for their future. So bit of an own goal by Hunter Workers and despicable
2: actions by the Mining Union, in in my humble opinion. Hmm. Alright, we'll just go play a quick announcement and then move on to our first interview. This is an open invite to the global climate strike. This Friday, 2pm at Treasury Gardens. Australia is already on the front lines of the climate crisis. Prolonged drought, flash flooding, catastrophic bushfires, severe cyclones and heatwaves. But just at the time when we need to ramp up climate solutions, we've elected a government in complete denial, chasing destructive profits for the few at a terrible cost for the many. If you can't make it to the gardens, 3CR will be broadcasting live from the strike So you can hear the speeches right here on your wireless from 2pm. So join us in saying no more at the global strike for action on climate change. This Friday, 2pm at Treasury Gardens.
3: 3CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of
2: thousands of jobs gone, contracted out, to sham contracting arrangements.
4: On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au.
1: Alrighty, welcome back. It is Friday morning, the 20th of September, and you are listening to Greenleaf Radio on 3CR. And on the phone line, we have Councillor Sue Bolton from Moreland City Council.
5: Welcome, Sue. Hi, how's it going? There you yeah, go.
2: so the reason why we just have, um, just to um, listeners' to this information, the reason why we have um, Sue on the line is um, the Moreland City Council um, has recently, at their last council meeting, um, which I think was... Not this week, but last week, um, made a decision to move remove armrests um from these some these shares that are located at um, Victoria Mall, um, and the claim that was kind of made um, from removing the basis was that it was hostile architecture to the homeless. Um, because it basically um there's basically there's quite a um a congregation of you know homeless people that actually slept on those benches um in the victoria moor um and you know they have since been removed um in response to the fact that when those arrests were um were added on um they were there to sort of basically you know um to get rid of the homeless people, except the Moreland Council claims otherwise that they were done for the purpose of disability access. So this has sort of caused a bit of a kind of stir um, in sort of the Herald Sun, um, with the Herald Sun, although I can't actually read the article, um, reporting on the decision as the Moreland Council's war on armrests. Um, so, yeah, Sue, can you guess, tell us a bit about the decision um, that the Moreland Council made and, you know... We might talk a bit more broadly about the kind of questions that are posed by this.
5: Well, um, I got alerted to the issue when some local residents contacted me to say that armrests had appeared on the bench seats outside the Coburg Library, and you're right, there are... I mean, a lot of people use those bench seats, you know, various elderly people and other people during the daytime to sit and relax. But um, some homeless people also do use those bench seats, um, sometimes during the day and sometimes in, in the evening. Um, and as the homelessness crisis has become worse and worse and worse, there have been more homeless people using those bench seats. And, uh, you know, and uh, as is well known, a lot of homeless people who are forced to rough rough sleep tend to prefer places which are a bit more open because they're more likely to be safer. Um, if someone wants to commit violence against them, there's more likely to be a passerby by who might help and assist. Um, so people often feel safer in more public kind of areas like the Coburg Mall or, or um, on the main streets and so forth. And um, so council, without any decision of council, um, decide to install armrests along the seats beside the library. Um, but they didn't install armrests on all of the other bench seating throughout the Coburg Mall. So the bench seating outside the Coburg Library is undercover, so it's sort of a sheltered area. Um, you know, it's not doesn't shelter you from wind and so forth properly, but um, it does shelter you from uh, rain, uh, from light rain, and it is a little bit of a windbreak um, as well. Uh, whereas the Other seats where they have not installed armrests are in the open. Now, council staff say that they did this for disability access, um, that people need armrests to pull themselves up and so forth, push themselves up and lower themselves down. And if that was the case, you don't need to put armrests right along the bench seats. You could just put a couple. um, And also, if that was the reason, you would put armrests... um, along all of the bench seats. Um, So my motion was to remove the armrests from the bench seats to, you know, allow homeless people, but not just homeless people, you know, various people to be able to stretch out and so forth on those bench seats. Um, There was quite a lot of debate in the council meeting and in the end the compromise motion that got passed was to remove... Armrest from three of the five bench seats outside the library. Um, so um, you know not you know I would have preferred a bit more, but um, that at least that was a better compromise um, than um, just leaving the armrest there. and it is true um, most of the homeless people have moved on, um, and I don't know if they've been moved on in a good way or a bad way. Um, A good way would be finding housing, um, but I'm not entirely confident that that is what has happened. And what this reflects is uh, a form of um, architecture and um, planning of public spaces, which is known as hostile architecture. And maybe it might be deliberate, maybe it might be unintentional, Um, But around the world, there are various um, constructions of public places now, some by local councils, some by private companies, some by other levels of government, which um, are designed in such a way to deter homeless people, skateboarders, um, you know, other sort of vulnerable people who might need to sit around in a public space for... A period of time, but can't afford to, you know, necessarily visit cafes and hang out in cafes, etc. So, um, you know, and quite a lot of cities around the world, um, armrests have appeared on seats to prevent people lying down. Um, some private businesses have put spikes in doorways to stop people lying in doorways. Um, some uh, sometimes bench bench seats are sort of designed to be sloping bench seats or um or the sort of things you see on um, some of the tram stops in Melbourne where you um, lean against something, lean your bum against something as opposed to having a bench seat to sit down on. Um, like that's in a sense um, designed to um, you know remove places for people to lie. Uh, some places around the world, um, they've, you know, one city in the United States installed bike hoops um, in a place under a bridge where a lot of homeless people used to sleep. And one place in Brisbane um, put rocks, um, supposedly as beautification works, in a place where um, a lot of homeless people slept. So there are all sorts of... Um, different uh, sorts of things like this. And I'm I'm aware that in Sydney Central Station, this is actually some years ago when they redeveloped Sydney Central Station, which is where there there are not only suburban trains but a lot of country trains in New South Wales, where sometimes people have to wait many hours. um, They get off one country train, have to transfer to another country train. Sometimes might be waiting six or eight hours. A lot of people used to sleep on the old bench seats, big round sort of bench seat uh, while they waited for their train. Um, now you can't do that because there's armrests there um, and you know so regardless of the intentions of the council staff, I mean the council staff say that this was, the armrests were for disability access um, but regardless of whether that's true or not um, the outcome is hostile architecture that prevents people from lying down if they need to. Hmm.
2: And what can you tell us, one thing um, that I'm interested in knowing is um, before the council meeting um, what was sort of like some, some of the emails that you had received from businesses because On one hand, um, Moreland Council was saying that, you know, this was all done for disability access, but then on one hand there appears to be some businesses that were completely against removing these armrests for whatever reason.
5: (laughs) Yeah, I did receive about a couple of um, emails from businesses, from the Kobe traders and businesses, and they were opposed to the removal of the armrests. And they clearly saw the installation of armrests as being a way of, um, preventing people from lying down uh, and, you know, primarily preventing homeless people from lying down and deterring homeless people from gathering in that, in that space. Um, so who knows whether there are different wings of the council bureaucracy that had different views or, or, um, that, I, I feel that, um, you know, yeah, I'm sceptical about the stated reasons as to why the armrests were installed. But the thing is that if you do things like this to deter homeless people, homeless people aren't going to vanish in a puff of smoke uh, unless you provide people with housing and, and other forms of social support and care. Um, people have to go somewhere. So it means all you do is you shift homeless people to another location, which may be a more dangerous, more uncomfortable, more unsafe location. Um, And I feel in Australia, we are shifting in the direction of the Great Depression levels of homelessness. You know, we have homeless camps in Australia now, um, in in the major cities and maybe even smaller cities. And once upon a time in, in Melbourne, Often um rough sleeping was more confined to the central C B D area. Now it's much more around the suburbs. There it's much more spread out. It is increased out of sight. And some of it might be some of it could be long term homelessness. Um, some of it could be short term homelessness. So, um and and this is what, you know, so I know I've been contacted by people since account since I moved my council motion by people who um, are upset with me for, um, uh, you know, um, you know, persuading council to remove some of the, count- the armrests. And, you know, one's a worker in one of the shops. who says, you know, he feels unsafe and he's been abused and so forth by various homeless people. Now, mind you, you can get abused by people who are not homeless as well sometimes on the streets or elsewhere. Um, and you know, another you know, couple of people have rung me to complain uh about the decision. But, you know, it's I think sometimes people, you know, buy the line from government that people who might be long term unemployed or long term homeless or, or or just homeless at all, who might be down on their luck for various reasons that they create the government line and the right-wing media's line is this is because these are people who are inadequate. Well, that's not the case. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons people might become homeless. Um, sometimes it's a result of family trauma, family violence, hmm. um, or could be some kind of trauma. I met one man who was homeless because he'd been working. He had been a worker most of his life. Um, in manufacturing, and his boss didn't pay him for a couple of weeks, and that was enough to keep him out of, out of, um, you know, out of his rental accommodation onto the streets. You can have someone who, um, you know, victim of family violence and gets kicked out of a house and suddenly ends up in the middle of Coburg Mall. You can have someone who's not necessarily homeless going home late at night, no money, and misses the last public transport, so you're on the street. Um, you know, you need to sleep somewhere uh, or, you know, hang out somewhere until it, you, until the next day when you can get to public transport. Like, you know, I mean, that's besides other issues like family violence. Prisoners getting turfed out at the end of their sentences with a couple of hundred dollars in their pocket. Um, how much accommodation does that get you? And we've had the closure of the two emergency accommodation uh, motels in Coburg um, the Coburg motor inn and the stay in. now these were not necessarily safe for places for people who are homeless but they were um, emergency uh, accommodation places in the moorland area and they've both closed so there that makes an even bigger pressure
1: on emergency housing Hmm. Hmm. Um, Sue do you think it's uh, a bit cynical and and a bit of divide and conquer to have said that this was infrastructure for um, disabled or less able bodied people and that's why we need to put that in there is that kind of using disabled people as like a battering ram to attack the homeless
5: well I tend to think so I mean I'm really quite sceptical about the stated reasons but then on the other hand you could have two wings of counsel you know um, (laughs) with um, understanding things to be for different purposes Um, but I do think sometimes what happens um, with these sorts of things in order to achieve an outcome which uh, in my opinion is undesirable and that is you know um, you know, decisions like this to try and deter homeless people, I see that as being undesirable. I think the real answer is providing housing for people and social support. Um, But you can have... But sometimes one wing of the bureaucracy might think, oh, well, this is, um, you know, a good reason to um, justify what we're doing so that we're not seen as bad guys. Um, and then other people sort of believe it and then just repeat it, or other wings of the bureaucracy believe it and repeat it. So, um, you know, I mean, I don't know all the inside machinations of how the decision was made, but, yeah, it does uh, set, you know, um, disability people against uh, homeless people and vice versa, although a lot of homeless people do have disabilities because... um, Any, any, um, anything that can make someone vulnerable can make someone vulnerable to homelessness. Hmm. Um, And you know, I mean, I'm quite sceptical because of the fact that armrests haven't appeared on the other bench seats in the Coburg Mall, only the ones which are used generally by homeless people. So I'm quite cynical, but it's quite possible that some staff have, you know, have been told you know, that this is the purpose of the armrest, and they might believe that. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know the inner, those inner workings. But even if it's unintended, if it's an unintended consequence of an action, it's still hostile architecture because it chases um, people away, hmm. in the same way as the um, as the city in the United States that installed bike hoops um, in the area where homeless people slept. So they probably would have, that city probably would have sold this. This is a great thing for cyclists and blah, blah, blah. And there's probably a need for bike parking and all the rest of it. But the problem is that came at the expense of homeless people. And so, so, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of cynical things that governments and businesses do like this. But also sometimes one wing of the organisation that does this stuff might have a... um, you know, cynical purpose, but then other people in that organisation might
1: believe that and just repeat that. Hmm. And Moreland Council has a pretty substantial annual budget. Have you seen, Is there any appetite within Council? And we know that there's a few Greens on Council. At times, Moreland's taken a reasonably progressive stance on things, other times not. Is there much appetite, do you reckon, for Council to use a bit of its budget to build some sort of... Um, basic um, shelter for people that are sleeping rough, because there's plenty of vacant blocks of land in reasonably sort of public spaces throughout that Moreland LGA area.
5: Well, actually, interesting you say that, because I have on two occasions moved motions for council to create a sort of like a drop-in centre, somewhere where people can go. It doesn't solve the housing issue, housing crisis issue, but a sort of drop-in kind of centre so that people can um, get out of the elements when it's extreme heat and extreme cold and wet and so forth and, you know, have a shower and, um, and um, you know, maybe, um, you know, get a hot drink or something um, so that people don't have to um, be out in the elements. And there was sort of um, sort of support from the other councils when I raised that issue, but when it came to the crunch of spending money on something, that evaporated because the council organisation uh, or the upper echelons of the council organisation were resistant to the idea of council spending money on anything like this because they see it as a state government responsibility. And plus I also got um, contacted by the Salvos who do run a sort of drop-in centre in Brunswick saying, oh, well, we already do that, you know, this is a replication. But the thing is that in Brunswick, I mean, I actually think there does need to be something in Coburg. Mm. Um, and obviously people who are begging, who feel forced to beg, um, aren't, aren't going to want to be in the drop-in centre all the time um, because they're trying to... You know, find a way of raising funds to cover, you know, whether it could be medication or food or um, whatever it is, or, or electricity bills. I mean, some people who beg might actually have accommodation and not be homeless, but they might be um, on the edge of losing that accommodation. Um, but it still would be somewhere where people could go out of the element. And I have spoken to people like the Homeless Persons Union and other people um, who are involved with homeless issues and they said that this would be a good idea but the whole idea was really scotched by the council and the councillors were not prepared to push on with the other councillors were not prepared to push on with the idea. But I personally think that would be a help, not a solution, but a help. Um, for people, because it means people wouldn't have to necessarily always hang out in front of the Coburg Library or wherever. Um, there would be an alternative place where people could go. Hmm.
4: Right.
2: Well, um, Sue, do you have any kind of final comments? Because we're just guess, um, running out of time now. Could you go and move on to the next interview?
5: Yeah, no, I think that's really it. But I think we just need to be vigilant about this issue of Hostile architecture, which is designed to basically deter homeless people.
1: Definitely. And you're heading along to the climate track today.
5: Absolutely. Just about to go now.
1: Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> All right. We'll uh, we'll catch you there.
5: No worries. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks, Thanks, Sue. Bye. Bye.
1: Uh, yeah, Councillor Sue Bolton there from Moreland Council, uh, talking about hostile architecture and measures that have been implemented to try and flush out um, people f- who've been sleeping rough in uh, Coburg Mall, which is not, uh, not really a very nice thing to do to people who uh, find themselves in that situation. All right, we're just going to play a couple of announcements, and then we're going to be speaking to Sophie Lestrange from the Melbourne Activist Legal Service.
3: A 3CR supporter. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living
1: on the street, and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society, and I think that's where a lot of these people are but I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience.
2: If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed?
0: Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR.
5: This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the Nurses' Dispute in 1986,
1: Rightio, welcome back. This is Left Radio. You're listening to 3CR. It's quarter to eight on Friday morning. It's Climate Strike Day. And on the phone, we have got Sophie Lestrange from Melbourne Activist Legal Service. Welcome, Sophie.
3: Thank you very much.
2: Yeah, Um. so good morning, Sophie. Um. I just wanted to get... um. Just yeah, to start off, I guess the just the reason why we have you on the program has been the sort of recent example of policing um, that has happened at um, that happened last weekend on at the Extinction Rebellion Princess Bridge blockade, and um, I'd like to kind of hear from you, kind of what kind of happened there, to a bit of a summary of the situation.
3: Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm sure many people are aware about the big protest last weekend, but if they're not, there were um hundreds and hundreds of people gathering in the city to protest the lack of government action on, on climate change. And Melbourne Activist Legal Support attended that protest to observe and document police tactics and police behaviour and interactions with police and protesters. And we do this to um, to be an independent recording of, of those things. And what we observed that day with our team of eight who are on the street was... Um, it was quite troubling uh, for many reasons. Um, some of the things that the police were doing were things that we've seen them do often before, which is things like using uh, the mounted police, which are the police who ride horses, which are um, you know quite intimidating sight to see, and they're also quite dangerous sometimes to have around. Um, so that was a, a concern that we often have. Um, but the main thing that caught our eye that day was. That police actually cordoned off the protest area and they were preventing people from joining the protest. But that was a real, a really big concern because across Australia, but especially in Victoria, we have rights to protest and rights to politically demonstrate. And the police are not, um, in our legal system, they're not supposed to interfere with those rights unless they've got a very good reason to. Yeah,
2: and um, I guess one of the things, um, in terms of that block um, in the protest, is they prevented journalists and media outlets from actually entering the protest zone and actually reporting on it? Um, yeah. What can you comment on that?
3: Yeah, look, the media plays a massive role in in political protest, and they always have, uh, and that's you know letting letting the rest of the, Australia and the rest of the rest of the world. See what's going on. It gives a massive voice and a platform to these issues, and journalists have a, again, have a right to, to record what's happening in our society and to have access to doing that. And the police, again, you know, our our legal system protects the right for the for the press and the media to do that. And the police are not supposed to arbitrarily, which means without very good reason, interfere with those rights. So it was very troubling on the on the weekend to see police the police not only stopping individual members of the community from joining the protest, but stopping the media from covering it. It's worrying for a lot of reasons, and one one is what I've mentioned, which is just the fundamental rights that shouldn't be um, shouldn't be negatively impacted by the police. But secondly, if we can't record and we can't project those things to the rest of the world. It opens up a very dangerous space for the police to be able to act without repercussions. If we can't document and we can't see what is going on, then our opportunity to call foul to any behaviour is very limited, and that's something that Australia holds really dear.
2: Hmm. And um, in terms of this, um, what do you... What can you comment on kind of some of the broad, um, these sort of broader, do you think these are kind of reflective of some broader trends within policing, especially since um, there's going to be likely to be a lot more civil disobedience actions around the right? In fact, Extinction Rebellion is going to be organising a weaker rebellion. Um, there's also the blockade I mark. Um, and then, of course, going back all the way to 2017, um, there was a big pushback um, against kind of you know, refugee protests. In fact, mm. one protester was actually brutally sort of beaten by, well, if you can describe how to describe it like that, it's a bit difficult. But yeah, he, there was someone who was physically attacked by a police officer um, in in in, to, um, in 2017. So, what, what what do you think are some of the broader trends of policing and protest? Do you think is happening, here, especially in contrast to what's happening in Queensland right now?
3: Yeah, look, we're we're actually working on a project at the moment, mapping out police trends over the past years, and uh, to to produce a report that really clearly shows and demonstrates how things have been changing and in, in what way. So I'm very, I'm very, you know, firstly, I'm very keen to, to that um, project to be finished and that report to be published. But that's one thing we are working on, which will give a, hopefully like a a, a great um, a great easy way for people to have a look at that. But it's definitely something that we have been seeing growing over the years. If you look back, you know, to the protest in Melbourne in the 90s uh, that got quite violent around the the G8, and you follow that through to uh, the Occupy Melbourne protest, which if anyone who was around then remembers, got quite violent towards the end of it. So violence between... Violence from police at, at protest is not a new phenomenon in Australia and it's probably something that's not going to go away for quite a while. The rise of tensions that has been happening between protesters and police and between protesters and the general public is definitely something that I think anyone who's been to a protest over the last few years will have noticed has been increasing. Police have always played a role in in this space, and what is becoming more apparent is that the fear that police have in preventing people from taking part in protests is is definitely growing. Police have obtained over the last few years what they term less than lethal weapons for crowd controlling. Um, We see police carrying long-handled batons and capsicum spray or what sometimes is called OC spray. Uh, These these sorts of um, weapons, or less than lethal weapons, or whatever you want to call them, they're not just important when they're used. Their presence is important, and in that that in, installation of of fear in people that prevents them from wanting to take part in protest or making them feel unsafe when they are at a protest, is as much a a, a violence as the actual use of those things. And we've definitely seen a rise in those. And those, those are state sanctions. Those are things that the, that the Victorian government is paying and encouraging police to, to take out to these protests. And it's very worrying because, as I've said, it's not just about when that violence occurs, but it's about the spread of that violence. And we want people in, in Melbourne and across Australia to feel safe and comfortable and empowered to protest and to politically demonstrate, and they should be free to do that without the fear of
2: violence and without violence itself. Zane, do you have a question you would like to ask?
1: Oh, just, I guess the other thing about these non-lethal weapons is when they're initially introduced, the, the, the line is always these will only be used in very severe circumstances, and then as time goes on, inevitably the... Uh, police tend to get a bit more trigger-happy with uh, cracking these things out, and we've seen that with things like OC spray yep. and uh, tasers.
3: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Look, you know, I think capsicum spray is a great example of that. If you, if you um, have any spare time and want to read the Victorian Police Manual, you'll see that there's very strict guidelines about how and when capsicum spray is supposed to be used, um, supposed to be used directed at an individual to prevent an immediate threat of violence. And, you know, we see capsicum spray being used, for lack of a better word, willy-nilly sometimes at protests, being sprayed indiscriminately. So that means being sprayed across people. Um, And we've seen that happening to people when they've been sitting down and peacefully protesting and there's been no imminent threat of violence. All we've got to go on is experience and and what we've seen happen in the past and these trends. And so I think you're completely right. It's very worrying with these less-than-lethal weapons uh, when we've seen them go from being used properly to being used um, in really unsafe manners, and these these new weapons uh, are much a much higher level than OC spray and batons. We've got um, pepper ball bullets, which are little rubber rubber bullets. Now there's, has been one death from these bullets in um, in another part of the world. We've had um, one person has gone deaf from. Being hit in the ear by them, so they're not they're not lighthearted. They're serious. They're serious machinery, and we're very worried. You know, down the years, how these are going to be rolled out. Hmm.
2: Hmm. Yeah, um, just one last kind of question I kind of have is, um, in terms of like some of the police's sort of actions um, at this protest, what was their kind of justification um, for sealing the kind of protest zone?
3: Um, look, we didn't get a uniform justification for for why they were doing it. Um, we got a range of answers. The main one that we got was that it was for safety, and we just don't we we just couldn't quite understand what exactly it was that they were fer- referring to by safety. Um we observed the protest um, to be to be peaceful. Yes, it was disruptive. It did block off a road. It did it did cause um, a bit of disruption in the city, but that's what protests do. That's exactly the the, the basis of how they operate. It's nothing new for a protest to cause um, traffic disruption, especially in Melbourne, which is um, which we see these types of protests happening, you know, several times a year. So the excuse that it was, or the reason that was given, that it was for safety was just one that we couldn't buy at the time. Mm. We think it was more about um, controlling those protests. And, you know, that might be something that the police want to do, but they just simply don't have the legal authority to do that in those circumstances when there is no threat to safety and there is no immediate danger.
1: And so, if the Melbourne Activist Legal support, you do a bunch of good work um, helping out uh with with legal support as the name would suggest for various protests including some of the anti-fascist and anti-racist protests that have happened how can people support the work that you do
5: oh what a fabulous question
3: <laughs> um, we have a fundraiser going on at the moment um to try and raise money so that we can buy ourselves more equipment um such as uh gopros which are great for just doing continuous recording um to upgrade some of some of our tech you can um Donate to us. Uh, you can go straight to the donate site, which is support-activist.raiselead.com. But you can also find a link to that through our website, melbourneactivistlegalsupport.org, or through our Facebook page. So they're all there. But we're also always looking for people to come and join join our team. We're a group of volunteers. Some of us are lawyers, some of us are law students, some of us are
5: paralegals.
3: Some of us aren't employed in the legal profession at all. We just are. we just into that side of things. And if you want to come, come and join and become a legal observer, get trained up um, on how to do it, or become part of our organising team, our admin team, um, and or become one of our trainers, which is which the people in our group who go out and do Know Your Rights with Police training, or work with groups on how to set up their own internal legal support team. We'd love to have you. So jump on our website or our Facebook group, and um, and we'll we'll let you know when our next when our next meeting is and our next training.
1: Yeah, we could. All right, um, Sophie Lestrange. Thank you very much for speaking with us this morning.
3: Thank you very much for having me. All
1: right, catch you next time. So thank
3: you, you. You going
1: to the climate strike today?
3: Um, I I am. Yep, see I'll you. definitely be there.
1: All right, see you there.
3: Okay, see you there. Bye. Bye.
1: Sophie Lestrange there from Melbourne Activist Legal Support, and as Sophie said, they're currently having a fundraiser so they can upgrade their equipment and do what they do a little bit better, so uh, if you've got a few bucks to spare, get amongst it and uh, show your support. All right, we are coming up to the Activist Calendar. Stick around.
5: 3CR broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs
0: every week, including a diverse range of community language shows.
4: If you are watching 3CR Community Radio, please
2: subscribe now. We are listening to 3CR Community
4: Radio in 3CR Radio Community Radio.
0: Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday Morning Breakfast Show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio 855 AM Digital and streaming live on. 3cr.org.au. Green Greenleft Radio is brought to you by the Greenleft Weekly newspaper providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Greenleft Weekly by visiting the website at Greenleft.org.au
2: or call one eight hundred six three four two zero six for new subscribers. I on free Now, it's, which is the time of the day? It is the activists' calendar. Um, so, I guess the main thing that's happening today is the global climate strike. So, which is happening <laughs> oh, is it at it two p.m. at the streets gardens. Um, but there's also plenty of contingents that are meeting a bit earlier. For example, there is the uni contingent to the global climate strike, where all the universities. Um, students kind of meet up at 1, but then there's specific universities like Melbourne Union are going to be sort of meeting at different times, like uh, at so on. There's also the trade Union sort of contingent, which I think is meeting at 1pm at the Schrades Hall. Schrades Hall, I'm going to be at that one. And bringing then, my CFMAU flag on. And then there is also um, some other, um, I think there might be some other contingents. Yeah, those are the different kind of contingents that are kind of happening. Um, but then, yeah, it's all going to be meeting at um, at 2 p.m. at the Treasury Garden, and that's when the rally kind of starts. Um, but then afterwards, if you're interested, there's going to be an after-rally forum hosted by Social Science and Left Weekly, Climate in Crisis, Why We Need System Change. So that's going to be happening at 4.30 p.m. Um, after the climate strike at Level 5, Seven Swanson Street um, in the city. Um now, other things that are happening, there's going to be shout out to Peace and Climate Action, um, Melbourne Rally, um, hosted by the Independent Peace and Action Network happening at, um, at 1pm, um, at Federation Square. Um, and then also happening at the same time, there's going to be a rally organized by Rainbow Rebellion against marriage exemptions happening at 1pm this Saturday at the State Library. And then some other work things, I'm just going to go through this, sorry. Uh, And on, nope, sorry, I'm getting it. On, on Monday, um, night, there's gonna be a number, there's a, there's Extinction Rebellion, uh, intro talk at the series, Education, um, series centre in Brunswick East. Um and then there'll be also the um there'll be a Green Left Weekly discussion, Marx's lessons for today's client rebels, happening at six PM Monday the twenty third, um at at um the Resistance Centre Level Five Four Seven Swanson Street. Um and then on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, there'll be a public forum, Climate and Crisis, What Kind of Rebellion Will It Take, um which will um be happening which will be at level five four oh seven Swanson Street in the city. And then trying to get into some of the other events. And then on Sunday, September the 20th, not this Sunday, there's going to be an XR Northcote climate protest drowning happening at 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Northcote Town Hall. And then also happening at 1.30 to 2 p.m. at RRT, there'll be a blockade IMARC organising meeting. So, yeah. And then on Tuesday, there'll be another introductory meeting to um, Extinction Rebellion in Brunswick. And then, trying to find out some of the rents... And then, on the 7th of October, will be Extinction Rebellion, Spring Rebellion, which will be opening up our... which will be having its opening ceremony at 4pm at the Carlton Gardens, with a protest and a blockade at 5pm. So, that's going to be... That week of rebel, um, that, um, spring rebellion is going to plan to last for a week and there'll be various different sort of actions happening throughout the week. Um, so that should be, you know, quite a good event. And then there also will be the blockade I mark, um, happening on the 28th, starting on the 28th of October at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Yeah. Sick. All right.
1: Now, I'm, um, I wanted to play a song this morning. I'm actually in a band with Claire and Sharif and Ed and Sally. And our band is called When Our Turn Comes. And we released a new song this week. And it's called Climate Strike. And you can guess what it's probably about. It's about the climate strike. We have got a gig coming up on October 12, Saturday, October 12 at Cafe Gummo in Thornbury. If you want to come and check us out. And if you're going to the Climate Strike today or you're having a Climate Strike after party or some related event and you want to chuck a bit of Climate Strike music in your in your playlist, uh, it's on Spotify, it's on iTunes and all those sort of platforms. So yeah, check it out. And we've got this great film clip that our friend uh, Eric made for us too. So yeah, keep an eye out for that one. So this is when our turn comes with Climate Strike.
4: Fix the no you quit in the darks when you got cancer. How can I prevent it? But know the answer How many decades are passed Dumping on the climate Clear, fell in the planet Of wrecking environments You'd think we had another planet to go to But we don't We're like a bunch of people lost at sea Wrecking our own boat Wait, whoa What did you say? Conspiracy agenda the Climate, the new world Order, the main offender Look, the main offender is you Burying your little head in the sand Garden CO2 multinational scum Just keep on running the profits From machinery that's cooking The world won't stop on time for people like you to come to your senses step back and watch as the revolution commence. Ah, we seriously gonna wait until there's no North Pole before we step on the brakes. We're leaving the way too late, and that's a fact. You Gonna get down on the street and take the power back. Ah, we seriously gonna wait until there's no North Pole before we step on the brakes. We're leaving the way too late, and that's a fact. You Gonna get down on the street and take the power back. People of the future, listen to me. We've got to charge them with mass murder. Can't you see? The dirty bastards knew exactly what they were doing. They got a million warnings, but they insisted on still polluting hell. They were barking out orders from the top like, burn all the carbon reserves that we've got. More than happy to leave your planet trashed. And for a brief moment, they could make up under the cash. On a future that I'd like to contemplate, I'd rather be part of a mass movement to break the state. Emergency action, decarbonize across the globe. Nationalize the energy sector, yeah, lock alone. Make all of the wind and the solar publicly owned. Get it done right and keep prices under control. The police and the batons and the media barons. Get the barriers, we the got to bulldoze to make it happen. We're seriously gonna wait until there's no North Pole before we step on the brakes. We're way too late. And that's a fact, we gonna get out of the street and take a power back. Ah, wait. Scary is we gonna wait until there's no North Pole before we step on the brakes. We're leaving it way too late. And that's a fact, we're gonna get out of the street and take a power back. Oh,
1: Strike by me
2: band when our turn comes. Yeah, uh, that's actually the first time I've listened to it. I thought it was quite good. (laughs) Ah,
1: Thank you, Jackson.
4: Thank
2: you.
1: What's what's new? Can I read a story? Yep. So, in New South Wales, uh, the Independent Planning Commission has stopped a coal mine proposed for the Bylong Valley, which is amazing because... There's a bunch of little local community organisations across the Hunter Valley and in surrounding areas that year after year fight these grinding, ongoing battles against the coal mines who want to either expand existing mines or build new ones. They're horrible massive open cut pits, they have disastrous climate change effects, they also trash the water table, they also put heaps of dust in the air, which apart from being bad for your health in its own right, because it's dust and you're breathing it in, it also contains heavy metals and stuff like mercury and cadmium and arsenic and horrible cobalt, stuff like that. so it's it's horrible stuff, and people fight these long battles against a tremendously powerful adversary, and they usually lose. And in this case, they've won. And after years of campaigning, the Independent Planning Commission has uh, declared that this mine in the Bylong Valley should not be allowed to go ahead. Uh, so landholders and community groups have reacted with joy and relief. And the Commission uh, cited unacceptable impacts on groundwater, strategic agricultural land and heritage values of the Bailong Valley, as well as the mine's impact on climate change and intergenerational equity. Uh, Lock the Gate Alliance spokesperson Georgina Woods said this is the right decision from the commission and it shows New South Wales is getting its priorities right, safeguarding strategic farmland and water resources from destruction and depletion for coal mining. We warmly congratulate the New South Government, blah, blah, blah. Bylong Valley is a very special place, not just for the farmers that produce wool, beef and fodder there, but for people around the state that recognise its extraordinary beauty and rich cultural and natural heritage. In a week when school children are preparing to strike from school for their future, we warmly welcome uh, the recognition that this coal mine would be contrary to the principle of intergenerational equity. So, yeah, tip of the cap to those people in Bailong who have fought long and hard for this outcome, and uh, it's, it's really good to see, and a bit of a a bit of a, a shift, you know, the, the, the legal system is influenced by the broader sort of social context and, and I think it's because there is uh, increasing levels of climate action in, in various different spots that this sort of decision can be made by by a planning commission. So, may it be the first of many coal mines that are rejected, that's my sentiment,
2: now, um, I guess I wanted to um, start by discussing some of news that's um, happening kind of in the international sphere, um, but it, that is on the subject of West Papua. Um, in this article um, by Peter Boyle titled in- "End Australian and, and US Training of Indonesian Military," and um, this was said by Benny Wendy, um, Wenda, Chair um, of the United Liberation Movement of West Papua, in a statement released on September 2010, We are winning the struggle with Indonesia, politically, legally, morally, our arguments have prevailed. And then Wenda continued, 18 countries in the region recently came out in, um, for West Papua during the Pacific Island Forum. Um, Indonesia has be, um, only one tactic left, repression. And, of course, six two thousand new Indonesian occupation troops have been deployed in West Papua since the uprising began last month and have been carrying out arrests, raids and murders. These Indonesian troops were attacking peaceful activists who were calling for a democratic um, referendum to be carried out through an international mechanism, said Wenda. On August 28th, um, the Indonesian military shot six people dead who were peacefully pro- um, protesting in Uh, Wenda said people in West Papua are scared because we carry the trauma of Indonesia military operations, such as the 1963 Troika invasion, the the 1977-78 Highland operations described by the Asian Human Rights Commission as an neglected genocide, and the ongoing military operations in New Dugia, which have displaced over 35,000 people. And dozens of peaceful activists have been arrested, including Boksha Tabiuni, um, vice chair of the ULMWP Legislative Council. And an Indonesian police fired six times at, um, Bokshita's house in, in Kam Kamwalka, Up, Abapura, before arresting him. And of course, wh- while this is all happening, um, hundreds of, um, um, West Papuans studying in Indonesia were forced to flee their homes because of increase in racist violence and abuse, and in some instances students have had live snakes thrown through their windows. And Ronnie Kani told a September 7th solidarity rally in Sydney that the thousands of in, in Indonesian military and police deployed to West Papua include the elite special forces unit. And these special forces have, you know, been trained um, by... Um, the Australian government, the US government and other Western governments, said Karina, These governments have be- to be held accountable for, their, for this misuse of their taxpayers' money. And Carina, you know, in closing, called for this military aid to be stopped and for Australia to support the commitment by the Pacific Islanders Forum to urge the UN High Commission uh, for Human Rights Michelle Bachelet to visit West Papua to investigate conditions there.
1: Alright, right, and might just play a a quick uh, announcement that's related to that story. So there's a CD launch coming up for West Papua.
4: Come to a very special evening
1: of music, dance and dinner. Joy of Freedom, Pacific voices sing out for West Papua. Celebrate the launch of the CD Joy of Freedom on Saturday the 21st of September from 6pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Entry is $15 and includes dinner. Performers include the Chandra Wassey Dancers, Pacifica Victoria Choir,
2: corrie Ann, the Black Sisters, Black Orchid String Band, Izzy Brown from Combat Wombat, and Tatame and the Neighbours. Because music is our weapon. More
1: information at Facebook event Joy of Freedom, a 3CR supporter.
4: Freedom to Red alert! Numbers are needed at the
0: Japarang Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarang country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the
4: Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling
3: on people from all walks of life for support.
0: You can help
4: by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat, or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews
3: to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty.
2: All right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it is 8:17 a.m., um, so we're, um, um, we're finishing up the program shortly. Um, but I guess one thing I want to discuss, going into some international news, um, has been just to give a bit of my take on this scandal that has befouled um, the poor old Canadian Prime Minister um, Justin Trudeau. Um, so for those who probably haven't read, been reading this, the scandalous headlines, um, there's been this controversy around, um, Justin Trudeau because he was found when he was a 29 year old teacher of, um, donning essentially what is blackface, um, at a costume party in 2000, well, what, in 2000 in wine, which was, you know, definitely characterized as kind of a racist act. And it's, I find it, what, what I find quite interesting is, there has been, you know, some rightful moral outrage about this. But then I would hardly have to say this is actually hardly the worst thing Justin Trudeau has done. Hmm. In fact, the worst things he's done has been, you know, as a prime minister, he's approved oil pipelines being built in Um First Nations land in Canada. Um He has been he has sold you know weapons, um, basically being part of selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. Um, you know despite you know being a champion of sort of you know racial privi- uh, of multiculturalism and 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 so on. You know by the fact that he's employed like you know a number of people of colour in his ca- cabinet, etc. It's all for the most part all rhetoric because he's just. Implementing neoliberal sort of policies that just disenfranchises people of colour and other marginalised communities, and especially First Nations, um, who he likes to go on a lot about how he cares about First Nations people while you know selling off their land and and so on. Hmm. So I think it's like you know it's a bit of a gross set of hypocrisy from the progressive sort of bourgeoisie to you know act morally outraged about this but have never called him out for you know these the um his neoliberal kind of economic sort of policies that have disenfranchised um, you know, people of colour and other marginalised communities Yeah, and I guess
1: you can have a crack at him for wearing blackface at a party 20 years ago and it doesn't cost you any money whereas having a go at him for Saudi arms exports or uh, pumping tar sands out of indigenous land that's, uh, that affects profits so it's probably why we haven't seen so much criticism of those particular things
4: mm.
2: So, yeah, that's just um, why just one, my kind of sort of take on that sort of recent story that's come.
1: Yeah. Uh, There's another story at uh, Green Left this week. Young Yamitji woman shot dead by Geraldton Police. Uh, Yamitji First Nations members gathered in front of Geraldton Police Station on September 18 to vent their outrage and grief over the death of 29-year-old sister Joyce Clark, who was shot dead the night before by a police officer on the outskirts of town. Among the gathered were elders of the community, close friends and family of the deceased sister, all wanting to know what was going to be done about the murder of a young woman who was known as a happy-go-lucky sister and capable of hurting a fly. The snap action was organised by a local Yamachi woman, artist and academic, Charmaine Green, to get across to the town that the West Australia Police Force are not our friends. They do not have our best interests at heart, and the sooner this situation goes away, the better for them. Like so many other incidents between the police and First Nation community where death has resulted, the police officers involved will be investigated by the police force and will be found to have done nothing wrong. History has shown that the police will kill and move on with their lives as if the death of a Yamaji person is akin to killing an animal. Sister Joyce had recently been released from prison She was poverty-stricken and unable to navigate society like many other young women in her shoes. She came from a demographic that is seen as a scourge on society, a waste of space that should be hidden, something I believe that made it so much easier for the cop to pull that trigger. First Nation women are seen as subhuman. We are stereotypes made to be seen as animals, dirty gins who are only good for sex. Stereotypes about First Nations women make it easier or justifiable justifiable for the white men to hurt or kill us. In this case, it helped a cop put a bullet through a woman without a second thought. Jo- Joyce's murder has shocked and caused much grief and anger among our mob. We all know that it could have been any one of us or a family member or friend. Not only do we sisters have to navigate and try and stay alive amid our own culture due to intergenerational trauma, something the WA police forces historically played a big part in, but the white man looking down at us uh, and with the white man looking down at us in disgust, we also have uh, have to have faith that we will not get killed by a police officer when we come in contact with him. We need systems in place so that we come out of that contact safe and alive. The very people who are supposed to protect us instead hurt and kill us on our own land. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's a story from... Um, Deborah Green, uh, a Yamachi woman and writer from <coughs> from uh, Geraldton, um, Yamachi country. And, yeah, she finishes, rest in peace, sister. I really hope the outcome of the investigation comes out in favour of you, but until I see it happen, I do not believe it will. And once again, a disgraceful um, killing of, of another Aboriginal person by the police.
5: Mm.
2: Now and now the next the more positive news story um, is I'm I'm sure Zane knows who this is um, Jock Powell Freeman um, who was who just a bit of background he was sentenced to 20 years jail for the murder of a man in December 2007 Um, he you know he was always insisted that he had come to the aid of a gypsy who has been attacked by essentially racist youths in um, on in um, Bulgaria and of course um a bit of background about jock Powell freeman he has he was a you know a, a radical when he was in and still is a radical um was a member of the um youth socialist organisation resistance and um as a as a as a um, when, how, while he has been imprisoned, he has worked as an advocate for reform in Bulgarian prisons during his 11 years in jail. Anyway, the positive news is he has moved a step closer to returning home after being granted a parole by a panel of three judges at the Sofia Appeal Up, Court in Bulgi- um, Bulgaria. So that is, I guess, hmm. some positive news, hmm. um, especially since he's been in jail. Because he had a long sentence, didn't he? Yes, so he's been in jail for quite a long time, um, and, you know, always unjustly, mm. um, because, you know, he he came it he was in self-defense of someone being attacked by some racist hooligans, mm. um, and it's a total injustice that he was ever held in jail to begin with, and the fact that he's going one step closer to freedom, I think, is quite exciting news. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's, that's great,
1: and uh, no doubt he'll quite possibly step into you know some progressive politics and speak at some forums when when he comes back home or not it's up to him in fact he might pretty in fact
2: he might he might even speak up uh, because he's a uh, socialist and activist. he might be happy to speak even to a free cr and uh, do an interview and so on speak up about um Mm. anyway let's hope he he can um he makes it to australia and so Yeah. yeah you will be um, a, 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 a very good development, especially since there's been so much solidarity work um, done for prisoners like him um, in the, um, that's happening right now. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Um, now, the last thing, going back to the global climate strike, um, it's been kind of amusing seeing some of the, the right-wing kind of responses to it. Um, in fact, there's been a number of politicians who have been going on up-in-arms about it and how they're not supporting it because they don't support children going out of school. But the more funniest one that I saw on the internet was um, the counter-protest to the global climate strike from the right wing, and this counter-protest involves going to school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, the, um, so the Australian Liberty Alliance or whatever has set up this Facebook event um, go to school on September the 20th and how they're bragging about how instead of going to the climate strike, they're going to be attending school and actually learning. Um, that is the, the sort of the fact that this is the definition of a counter-protest um by the right, um, I think is quite amusing, actually.
1: What a sad and loose, useless bunch of losers. Yeah, no, that's... It's, uh, well... I think the numbers are going to speak for themselves today. It's going to be an absolute buttload of people out on the streets, as it should be. Yeah, and of course,
2: um, the majority of people who will attend school will probably won't um, won't be necessarily tending to support this right-wing cause anyway. But there might be all sorts of other barriers on why they weren't able to attend the strike. <laughs> mm. um, but the fact that the, major, um, the great majority there's going to be Hundreds and thousands of people who will be skipping school and attending the climate strike is going to be amazing.
1: Mm. Yeah, and the ACTU has put out a statement in support of the climate strike. Probably could have been a bit stronger, like listing details of the climate strikes and telling people to, encouraging people to actually, you know, walk out of work and come to the climate strike, but it's at least something. They're supporting it, so that's good to see. Uh, All right, well. Might just play a couple of uh, final announcements and then uh, stick around because Beyond Zero Emissions are coming in. And we will see you at the climate strike, which is, by all accounts, going to be epic.
2: Thanks again for tuning in. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition, parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions and look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117.
0: A 3CR supporter. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Three pieces of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website thank you for listening you were tuned into 3CR Community Radio 855 digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au to start sometime what better place than here what better time than now ah.
5: It's not a product, it's a technology.
3: It's an education challenge.
2: A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics,. Pump cadre.
3: Innovation and in the finance.
5: It's only ten dollars for the first seven issues.